And we say good morning. Good, uh, good to be here amongst God's people again. And uh, we are here to worship God. Did you know actually uh, people always want to know what the will of the Lord is? And I got, I got it for you. You want to know it? The secret is, in the New Testament it says that this is the will of God that you give thanks to the Lord. That's one of them. And we know that that's what we're supposed to do. And, and then He says to do it always. So, uh, if we're doing that, did you know that you are in the will of God if you're thanking Him? Which we've been doing this morning in our prayers and songs, our giving. We go to the Word of God. I don't have a, thanks, a particular Thanksgiving message, but anytime you go into God's Word... You have to give Him thanks for revealing Himself to you, to us, don't we? He didn't have to do that, but He did. And so we have more to go. You know, we'll never run out of God's Word. Always be there for us. So we uh, continue on with uh, looking at this epistle, this letter that Paul wrote to the uh, Corinthian church. And we're now in the section that's dealing with questions that they had for Paul. They had a lot of questions. And uh, we started in chapter 7. And that was dealing with marriage and singleness and divorce and widowhood. All dealing with with that. What do you do in those situations? And now we move right on in chapter 8 and 9 and 10, which is going to be dealing with basically one theme. And uh, the question would be, was well, how far does our freedom go? We have freedoms... And uh, Paul either has to give them a correction here or gives them an answer. So uh, I guess the question is, is there such thing as a gray area? Do Christians have gray areas? And uh, we'll kind of look at that. We know in the church there are going to be disagreements on some things and maybe a lot of things. Uh, subjects sometimes that are not really answered in the Bible. We, we have a lot of answers that we can always get just straight from Scripture. There's some that are just not... There, in some senses, I guess we could say, there are debatable issues sometimes, gray areas. Should one shop on Sunday? Uh, work on Sunday? What about smoking? What about drinking? What about dancing? What about movies? You know, how, how long or short should my hair be? Uh, how about dresses? Uh, how about uh, maybe makeup? Head coverings, yeah, that's right. That's been a big issue in in the church for a long time. Jewelry, you know, that was a big issue. That was back at that time. Uh, how about music? That's always a controversial issue. Boy, if you want to stir up controversy, you can go with that. The list just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And the thing is, is that sometimes there is no definitive answer. Now, some people, some individuals, some churches, some denominations will give you a definitive answer on certain things that are not in Scripture. And so sometimes we're just not for sure. Or they can be answers that really are not necessarily right or wrong. Now, how do we make a decision whenever we have gray areas? What do we do with that? Well, this is what Paul is dealing with in this section. Uh, Are we set free in Christ? Because of what Christ has done. Are we free? Yeah, we're free. You know, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We're, we're free from the bondage of sin. The problem is, 
is whenever our liberties or our freedom starts to affect others in a negative way. Do we have the right to do whatever we want no matter how it affects someone else? That's kind of what's coming up in this question here that they have for Paul. And Paul's going to show that it's wrong to offend the conscience of a fellow believer. Uh, somebody who is not as mature, maybe, in the Word of God. Um, mature in, in Christ. So we have to consider how it's going to affect other people. How's this going to do? Sometimes our thoughts kind of forget about other people and we get so in tune with ourselves that we forget about others and guess what? Now we've, uh, we've actually uh, made some kind of offense, maybe not even knowledgeable about it. But there are two extremes that we can go with this. First, there's legalism, which has a list of rules that just go on and on and on. And we remember that uh, the Pharisees had their rules, some 613, right? Do's and don'ts. And the people who practice those things, we know, have a tendency to show their high spiritualness and their pride. And uh, these list of rules, they do this, so therefore they are considered to be very strong. And uh, then you have other people who uh, would be considered to be weak to them. Uh, But the other extreme are the ones that would be the antinomians. Uh, They have no law whatsoever, have nothing to fence them in on any situation. They're free in everything. I'm free in Christ, so I'm free to do anything that I want. And as long as uh, my conscience is free, I'm going to do it, no matter what. Well, the Corinthians were probably in that category. That's where they were at. I'm free. I can do this. It doesn't matter. I don't care about anybody else. This is what I've been given. Now, the principle of our uh, chapter today, did you know that we're scheduled for a whole chapter today? A whole chapter. Sometimes we'll be on a couple of verses. And you know, in Ephesians, we might spend a whole week on one verse and maybe a couple of weeks on a verse. But here we are in Corinthians and we're going to do a whole chapter, Lord willing. But if you look at verse 9, you can pretty well get the summation of all of this. This is, this is our star here. This is our key verse. And it says this, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So there's, there's the principle. And it's talking about being a stumbling block to those who are weak. So we're going to take off in the first three verses here, the first part, and it's dealing with knowledge. Do the Corinthians have knowledge? Yes, boy, do they have knowledge. Oh, man, they know everything. I mean, these guys just know everything. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Paul's going to say they don't know anything. They thought they knew, they thought they knew a lot of things. But let's take the first three verses and let's look at that. Now, concerning things. He's moving on to a different subject, but it's, he said, okay, you have a question about idols and sacrificial meat. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know, there's your word, right? We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge <laughs> puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing. Yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Hmm. Okay. The particular issue here is idols and sacrifices. And they have a problem 
They have a cultural problem. Central issue is this. You become a Christian. And there are idols in the city of Corinth. A lot of idols. A lot of idolatry going on. And, a lot, and if you have idol worship, you also have sacrificial meals and sacrifices associated with these idols. And you remember, at Corinth was this place called Acro-Corinth. That meant there was a high, high hill overlooking the city of Corinth, which they had a great big, huge temple up there that was magnificent. And it it was a place of worship of idols. And temple prostitution was going on there. All sorts of sinful things in the name of their gods. So, this is what's happening. You have a great big temple. It's famous. You have all this kind of worship that's going on there. People would bring their animals to the temple to be sacrificed. There were only certain parts of that animal that was going to be sacrificed to idols. You didn't burn it all up and it all went to that pagan god. They would do something with the rest of the meat. So some of that meat would be spread amount, uh, about the priest. And so they'd divide it up and they'd have that to eat. But with all these sacrifices coming in, they couldn't eat it all. So then they would then send it to the city officials and they'd partake of that meat. But you still have a lot of extra meat left over. And so what do you do? Well, you make money with it and you send it down to the marketplaces. And so therefore, most of the meat that would be bought in the marketplaces would come from where? The temple where they uh, actually had animal sacrifices where the meat was sold. One wouldn't know for sure whether that meat had been sacrificed to idols, but there's a pretty good chance. They didn't have tags on there saying idol worship meat and non-sacrificial meat. They, They didn't have that. No stickers on there. But it was a pretty good chance if you went to a public banquet, you're probably going to be eating meat there that's offered to gods, idols, sacrificial meat. Now, you're a Christian. In Corinth, you're a new Christian, let's say. And you're in a delicate situation. Let's say that you don't have any problem with eating that meat. And well, you shouldn't. You know that it's not a big deal. There's probably not any idols. He's going to tell us that in verse 4. But if you have relatives... And they're still pagans. Now, you're a Christian. And they invite you over to eat that meat. What are you going to do? You're in a delicate situation. Listen, I'm not a pagan anymore. And why should I eat that meat? I don't want to do that because all that's going to do is make me look like a hypocrite. So, uh, But I've, I've got... Here's my parents and my brothers and sisters. This is a big deal. What do I do? Tough situation, right? But if you're free in Christ, it's an okay thing to do. It's okay. Um, If you're a new Christian and you have some friends that are Christians, new Christians, and they're sensitive about this meat issue because they know where they came from and they know what their background was and they know what that meat was about and it was being sacrificed to those gods... What would happen if they see you eating that meat, know you're going to go over there and eat that meat? Now, that's going to cause a problem with them. Now, I'm in a real fix. Okay, I don't have any problem with eating the meat, but then 
here's my brother in Christ over here and he knows that that is really a bad thing. Or at least he thinks it is. Now what am I going to do? Have you ever been caught in traps like that? Oh my. You know, what, what do I do? I, I don't want to be in the middle of this. Uh, it's like to the, to the brother in Christ, it's going to be like you're, you're sinning. So you've got this difficult situation. Matter of fact, you've uh, been uh, invited not only to this gathering, but the other Christian brother has been invited to that. Oh no, what do I do with this? Well, they know they're free to eat the meat. They have this knowledge. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Okay, we know about this. What about this weaker brother? Well, is knowledge bad? We've been almost acting like it's a negative thing to have knowledge then. Right? Let's just go around and be stupid. <laughs> Let's act like we don't know anything. We'll be okay. The less we know, the, the less we'll be uh, accountable to God. Well, I don't think it really works that way. He wants us to know. Doctrine and knowledge we know in Scripture is very important. You should seek God's knowledge. We live in a society, though, that is what? Anti-intellectual. It's like... Whatever, whatever you want to believe or whatever you think, that's okay. It doesn't matter because here's what I believe. We can all just get along and facts don't really matter. Knowledge doesn't matter. No big deal. We don't have to agree on anything. But in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, which I think probably everybody's familiar with, but it's a good reminder, uh, that is a good warning to what has happened to other nations and good warning to us. Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I'll also reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I'll also forget your children. He's talking to the nation of Israel here. And he has a charge against them. They really weren't knowing God. That's really what knowledge is really supposed to get to. To know God, to know the things of God, to react upon the things that God has given us. So, uh, according to Hosea, if we don't have knowledge, we could be destroyed. Our nation has become less and less knowledgeable about God, and as a whole, doesn't really know God, does it? And we know the ultimate punishment of that is what God will eventually do as He has done throughout history. Now let's go to uh, New Testament. Go to Colossians chapter 1, 9. What does God say about knowledge here? Well, Paul has a prayer. He says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Did we catch that? He wants them to be filled with His knowledge. What knowledge? Of His will. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What's the will of God? Well, we'd be saying thanks, first of all, right? That we'd be saved. That's another one. That we'd be sanctified. That we'd be saying thanks. Another scripture says that the will of God is that we'd be suffering. Um, we can go on and on with those. But that's, uh, that's a will right there. That we'd be filled with the very knowledge of all of His idea of what the will is of God. Chapter 3, verse 10. Again, dealing with knowledge. And have put on the new man, we are Christians, who is renewed in knowledge 
We are renewed in knowledge as, as Christians according to the image of Him, that's Christ, who created Him. We, have, we are to have knowledge, the knowledge of Christ, according to His knowledge. Um, go to 2 Corinthians. Ah, that's good. We'll, we'll uh, stop there. You might go to verse 7. Uh, you go back to the regular text now. Corinthians 8. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. In, in Christians, not everybody has uh, that stronger knowledge and to know what their freedoms are. So, knowledge is a good thing. It's very important. I think the Corinthians had more than enough knowledge of God's Word. They definitely had it. They weren't acting upon it. They were acting like babes we saw in chapter 3. But to know that pagan idols were not real, that the sacrificial meat was, was food, that's really all it was, they knew that eating that meat wouldn't affect them spiritually. So they felt totally free to do whatever they wanted in this matter. No matter what others thought. And that's where it comes into a problem. Because now there are other problem or other people that are involved in this. Well, he goes on and he says at the end of verse one, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge just blows the head. And it'll finally just blow up. You know, it puffs up. That's that's literally what it is. Blowing up. Uh, they had arrogance. They really had the right knowledge. But this kind of knowledge that they had and they didn't do it rightly, even though they had the right knowledge, made them arrogant. They were right, but in a wrong way. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Uh, Just knowledge of God's Word is not enough. It can lead to pride. It can lead to self-satisfaction. They had knowledge without love. Truth without love. Boy, this sounds like Ephesians chapter 4, doesn't it? Verse 15 and, and 16. Uh, almost identical with that kind of thinking. Liberty without regard of feelings of other people. That uh, can be uh, dangerous. But uh, they were they were arrogant. You can be you can actually be right and wrong at the same time here. You know that. You know that right knowledge be wrong how you do it uh, without love. Now turn to First Corinthians thirteen, and this is later on in this same epistle, very same epistle. It's that famous chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. There are a lot of famous chapters in Corinthians. You ever notice that? Chapter 15, which is one of the jewels of all the Bible, is about the resurrection. Here's 13 about love. And everybody's heard that so many times. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Oh, that loud, obnoxious sound. And though I have the gift of prophecy, I proclaiming and, and preaching and such, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A little bit of a picture of Jesus Christ there. Because He is love. We fall short of these. 
but uh, we are to take note of this and desire this to show in our own lives. Right knowledge, but it makes them puffed up or arrogant. Right in the wrong way. And uh, we see in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 8 again, I'm kind of skipping ahead again, but it says, however, there's not everyone that, that knowledge. Okay, You have the knowledge, but here's some other ones over here in the Corinthian church. They don't. He says, for some with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So we have these people that we have to be sensitive about. They were being insensitive. They had the knowledge. They were insensitive. And how they applied this knowledge, they didn't really have the knowledge, did they, what to do with it? Uh, what they would do is they'd flaunt their freedom in front of them. Hey, look at this. Matter of fact, you've seen kids, whenever they've been given something, one kid is, has something, and the other one, for some reason, doesn't get it. And all of a sudden he says, look at this. <laughs> you know, uh, could be some food or a toy, and he just starts playing in front of him or eating it in front of him and really flaunting it, right? Well, liberty, without regard of feelings of others, can do damage to that other person. And not only to the other person, but to the body of Christ. They never once thought of how this was really going to affect the other people who were maybe not so knowledgeable about this. They hadn't come to that point of all this freedom. And so look how they were executing the knowledge they had. Look at Ephesians 4.15. And this is why we say, this sounds like our Ephesians study, which has been on Monday nights. He talks about all the false doctrine out there and watch out, be careful. And, And then in verse 15, he says, okay, but speak the truth Truth it. Live out the, the, this uh, truth. But speaking the truth in love, there's your balance, may grow up in all things into Him who's the head Christ. Okay, so they're interacting within the body of Christ. Uh, being able to have that truth, but also being able to balance it with the love. And that's the, the whole, whole point of uh, that Ephesians there. So the believer really uh, relates two ways conceptually or concept dealing with knowledge having a concept ideas here right okay he relates conceptually with this with this knowledge or doctrine and he relates relationally with people if he keeps it to himself and then that's what he does and he doesn't relate it to other people then he's fallen far short of what God has intended for that he understands biblical truth but he doesn't relate that to people. So love is the medium. It's the go-between. It's uh, it's like a priest in a way. The go-between between one person and another. Love is the medium through which truth is to be communicated. We don't come in there and blast them in the head. We could be as right as could possibly be. Talking about the triune God, you know, I believe that Jesus is God, or something like that with somebody. We can come in there and just give them a left hook and then a right, and boom, knock them down and say, Man, I have truth. Boom, you just knock them and say, I don't care what you think, you know. And boy, that's really going to go over, isn't it? Like a lead balloon. Uh, but he's, he's, he's saying this you've got to be able to know how to communicate this truth, how to relate that truth to people around you. In Corinth, can you imagine 
all the knockdowns they must have had. And you remember, way back in chapter 1, do you remember the divisions they had? They already had almost a denominational thing going, right? Well, you, you can imagine, this was probably one of the issues right here, too, all involved with, with this. So, uh, there we go. Now, we know in Ephesians 4.15, truthing with love, and then we know in verse 16, it says it builds up the body. When you do the truth and with love, then the body can do nothing but be built up or edified. And that's what it's saying here in verse 1. At the end of verse 1, love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, just straight knowledge. But if you have the truth, this knowledge, with love, what does it do? Edifies. Edifice. You ever heard of an edifice? A building, right? And that's what it does to the body of Christ. So, and then he goes on and says, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, you got to like this. I think when we were in our Ephesians study, when we went to this passage, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. If you really think you know something, you don't know anything. <laughs> Have you thought of that on people before? He thinks he knows a lot of things. He doesn't know anything. Right? If anyone supposes... All right? What it's saying is, ignorance doesn't know that it doesn't know. And if we realize that we don't really know much of anything, we're just learning about God's Word. We're just in the process of... We're just babies growing up on this. The unloving, orthodox person is arrogant... He doesn't edify. He has right knowledge, but not understanding of it. He knows, but he doesn't understand. And I would say, I would hope that us as dear believers here would never become the right orthodox type people who can hurt anybody and everybody and forget about the feelings of others and hurt them on purpose. The arrogant cannot edify others. And so I think Paul gives us a warning, even though he's saying it to the Corinthians, there's always the danger of becoming puffed up. Uh, Just when we think we're just going really good, the next thing that can happen is pride. And that's one of the main sins that we have to battle on a constant daily basis. If any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. God help you if you think you know it all. Because Paul says you know nothing. Someone has defined knowledge as the process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance. Catch this. Going from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. We don't, we don't really know at all but we come to the point of, you know what? I don't. The more I know, the less I find out I really know. In a sense, I guess you can say. We move from thinking we know to everything that to knowing that you really know very little. And so, that uh, almost seems contradictory. And we are to seek God and seek knowledge and to know that. And my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But yet we realize that we have got a lot to learn. And so Paul says that. Then he comes down in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by Him. If you love God, 
It's because He knows you. Did you know Him first? Did you love Him first? No. In 1 John it says that uh, we did not love Him. He loved us first. It started with Him. It always does, doesn't it? God-centered theology. It's all about Him. It's not about me. But if I fit into Him and His will, then He adds all these things that we need, that He knows we need, and that we want, that He'll bring those things that He knows that will work for us. John 14.21 He who has My commandments and keeps them, it is He who loves Me. How can you tell one as a Christian? Well, he is obedient. He loves God. And He shows that He loves God by being obedient. And He who loves Me will be loved by My Father. You like that? If you love God, He loves you. Well, why do you love God? Because He put the love in you. <laughs> it's just a never-ending circle. It's all from Him though, but it shows that we are true believers. I will love Him and manifest Myself to Him. He will manifest. He will show Himself, demonstrate Himself to us. Look in 1 John. That's the book of John. Go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, just before the book of Revelation. 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves Him, who begot, also loves Him who is begotten of Him. Then he goes on to say, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is He who overcomes the world but He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he shows what a true believer is. He loves God. Because he loves God... And it was first God who loved him. He is now able to obey the commandments, which demonstrates that he's a true believer. So he loves God, he loves God's commandments, and he loves others. So, you know, it's impossible to know God and not love Him. Or it's impossible to know God and not to love others. And that's what First John writes on so much. We love God, we love our neighbor. Guess what? All the commandments are summed up in those two. Loving God is the most important evidence that we have a right relationship to God. Loving and being loved by God. That, that is everything, isn't it? You know what the key to behavior in the Christian church is? The body of Christ. Look in Philippians 2, verse 4. This is a key to our kind of behavior. Let each of you, chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you, that's every one of you, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Matter of fact, in verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteemed others better than himself. There's an impossible thing to be thinking that other people are more important than you. Do you ever hear of that out in the world besides the Bible? It says, think of yourself first, right? Number one. 
Right? It all starts with number one. And here he says, no, no, no. Be lowly in mind. Esteem others better than himself. Uh, look out not for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And that means you've got to look out for your own, but make sure you have it in the proper perspective. Now we come to point number two, back to our Corinthians passage. Chapter 8, looking at verse 4. 4 through 8 now is going to be dealing with knowledge. Okay, We, we, we were talking about it's knowledge and it's love, right? Truth and love, knowledge and love. Well, first of all, we look at this knowledge. He comes back to that in verse 4 after establishing this whole principle. Paul makes it really easy, doesn't he? Now, And it sounds like I'm repeating myself over and over. But how often do we forget these things? We need to be reminded. Is any of this thing really new to anybody here? We say, yeah, I know that. But do we really know it? Remember what Paul's saying. <laughs> if you think you really know this, you know nothing. Therefore, verse 4, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. Now he gets to the, the whole point. He's, in verse 1 he says idols, and then he says we have knowledge. Okay, now he says, okay, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. We know, there's our knowledge, that an idol is nothing in the world, that there's no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, oh, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. And we for Him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Knowledge. Right knowledge. What do we know? Well, we know idols are really nothing. You guys know that, don't you? Idols really don't exist. I mean, those gods, there, there are no other gods, are there? Isn't that as simple as can be? Those Corinthians understood that. At least these guys did. That he's instructing here. Um, he knows. They know. There's nothing to an idol. It's just an image. There is no substance behind it. It's absolutely nothing. It doesn't exist. And then he'll go on and describe that a little further. But uh, let's, let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. And here's where he's going to show that really what they're really ultimately worshiping there or something else. Verse 20. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. It really comes to that. Where they were really at, it wasn't some other God. It was actually demons and not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. <laughs> wow. That's the next chapter, well, two chapters over that he's still dealing with that. Let's go to Acts 19, verse 26. Moreover, you send and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout most of all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. These idols, they're not gods. They're just made with hands. There's nothing to them. They're not gods. That idol worship, it's nothing there. Go to Psalm 115. There, the psalm writer talks about idolatry. And I think this is where he really kind of makes fun of them, in a sense, how futile it is that they make these idols put a lot of money and work into them and, and they worship them there and there's, there's nothing there. He says in verse 6, Psalm 115.6, They have ears. No, here. They give them ears. A man makes ears on them. Noses they have, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. They can't speak, feel, 
touch, taste, smell, all of the senses. Those who are make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. They're nothing. So you know, you know, the psalm writer, you know, and, and I think uh, uh, somewhere else in Jeremiah we have the same kind of thing. It's ridiculous. There is nothing there. A man actually made them. They went out there and chopped down a tree and put slapped some kind of gold plating or silver plating on them and said, and then put it in front of them and said, "There, there's a god," and they would worship this god. Uh, so that's why Paul says so-called gods in. Uh, Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 8, 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, are so-called gods, gods and lords. Now, I think it's interesting. He has in brackets there, as there are many gods and many lords. Now, that could throw you for a loop. There are cults who will base their theology on this verse and another verse and say there are many gods. Did you know that you are a god? And um, you just need to realize that you're God. It, because it says right here it, and they'll, tr- they'll turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 right here in verse 5 and says there are many gods and lords. And you know what? People go, oh my, I didn't know that. I thought Jesus was God and, he, and there was only one God. Well, Jesus was God, but He was a little God, and we are to be like Jesus, so therefore we are gods. And a lot of people really get taken aback by that, and they go, oh, I didn't know that. And of course, all you have to do is read the context of this chapter and read on. He's already said that there's only one God, and He says in verse 6 that there's one God. He makes it very clear there. And what's the context? But see what they do? It's very simple to answer a call. All you have to do is read a few verses before, a few verses after, but a lot of people get caught on that and they'll say, oh, I'll show you another passage that will will tell this. Look at this in Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verse 6. And this is something that looks troubling. If you didn't know where and what is being talked about, I said you are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. You all are gods. Everybody's gods. Now, New Age thinking would love that verse. And some of the people who teach the manifested gods, sons of gods, we're all gods. We're we're just as equal to Christ as He is. And He's just like us. And we're like Him. There's no difference. But Jesus is God. We are not. And so He says you are gods. You are Elohim. Whoa. Well, that sounds really cool to people. They love that. So they'll take you to Psalm 82. They'll take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and say, See, that's what we all are. We're gods. And I, but I thought Jesus was the, the one true God. Well, he's, he's a God just like your gods. And that's the argument they'll put up. I have dealt with that with, with different people. And um, cults that were around here. And uh, you could go around and around and say, okay, that's enough. No use to deal with it. You know, you can show the passages. But one other passage is John chapter 10. And uh, they'll build their case on these kind of verses. But you have to just look at the context. John 10, 34, 35. Jesus answered uh, them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. Now, where is it written in their law? We just read it, didn't we? This is a quote right out of Psalm 82, 6. Is it not written... 
that you are gods. Oh, the cults will run with this verse. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, if he called them gods or Elohim, or in the Hebrew, it can not only mean God or lords, but it means judges, rulers. And in the context, if you look back in Psalm, the rulers who led the people into sins, idolatry, other different things, the rulers, those judges, if they had, if he gave them positions to be able to do that, that's the reason he said, you are gods. You see where it's transferring over here? Um, they were human judges, human rulers. They weren't God. There's only one God. The Old Testament says that. New Testament says that. So we have to correlate all the Bible. And so where it says one thing, we have to make sure that it's agreeing with another. Otherwise, the Bible is contradicting itself, isn't it? And so we look at the Hebrew and find out it's dealing with judges and rulers. And that's what he had actually made them. If they're judges and rulers and they're a God or Elohim, certainly Jesus is, isn't he? Above, over all of them. And that was the point that Jesus was making in John 10. So there's the context again. So those three passages is what I have been challenged with before. And it really wasn't much of a challenge because you just just read in the context. Go back before and see what they're saying in that whole psalm. What are they saying here in John? John 10 shows that Jesus is one with the Father. I and the Father are one. And that's what in Corinthians he's saying here. So, anyway, those people will deny the deity of Christ in, in Him being the ultimate one God. Um, and so... If, if anyone had a problem with that, it's, it's good to know that uh, that's what we can deal with. Defend the faith a little bit here, right? Now, he says in verse 6, Yet for us there is one God. There's no other gods. Those idols aren't gods. We know that. And it's okay for you to go ahead and eat that meat. There's one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ. That's showing His deity right here too through whom are all things and through whom we live. We, we live through Christ. There's one God, a triune God. They had the knowledge. What was their knowledge? Their knowledge was there's one God. I think they do well, right? They know there's one God. We know that they're doctrinally correct. They know. Paul's saying we know this. Okay, We exist for Him. We exist through Him. And now he goes into the the weak conscience here. Okay, he says, you've got the knowledge. We're still dealing with regulating this knowledge. Verse 7. However, there is not in everyone that kind of knowledge that you have. Some of them don't know the freedom that they have right at the moment. For some with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. We know that we can take the sacrificial meat. We don't really deal with these kind of meat issues today very much. But there are many other things. Like I said earlier, earlier it can be anything from um, uh, certain kind of uh, doctrines or uh, that we might have, secondary issues. It gets into um, television and movies or books or the way that we wear our hair or clothes. Many other things that we don't really necessarily have 
a black and white on it. We have gray areas. And what are you going to do? You're going to shove it down somebody's throat. Here's, here's this weak conscience here. Okay, you've got that knowledge. Not everybody has it. Not every new believer in Corinth is thinking in the same way. No. They were thinking that an idol might have been a, a real God yet. Maybe, you know, they've recognized the one true God. But maybe there's, you know, maybe there is something to that kind of God out there. Um, maybe some of them are thinking that or knowing that um, it's an evil God or, uh, you know, they know that a piece of meat has been sacrificed to whatever that is. They don't even know what it is. But if they eat of that, there's a curse on that meat. And so they don't want to take of any of them. They would bring in that same curse. Or if they did know that there is only, they know that there's only one God and they know that there's nothing to that God in one sense, but paganism is so fresh in their minds that they didn't want anything to do with any kind of thing that happened at that temple. And if it means not eating any meat anymore, so be it. That is an evil way of life. I can't handle it. I'm a Christian now and I don't want to be a part of that anymore. And that's where they're at. Their consciences were not strong enough to eat idle food. Now, should we take that big old steak whatever and still shove it down their mouth? You know, I teach him a lesson. Well, we go over to Romans 14 which is a corollary passage on this that supports this. Well, today you have a lot of battles over the Sabbath too. You know, is Sunday the Sabbath? Is Saturday the Sabbath? What do you do on the Sabbath? Should we go out and eat at a restaurant? Should, should we not work? Should we uh, not do anything? Different ideas on this. And I've heard it from one end of the spectrum to the other, and I'm sure you guys have too. And what do you do with it? Well, you want to be right with it, but I'm not so sure we have a particular exact answer everybody has in their own conscience. Romans 14, verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure. Everything. But it's evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine or do anything but which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. If you know that to you it's okay, your conscience doesn't bother about it, you have studied the Word, you studied Scripture, okay. Be happy in the Lord with that, and that's okay. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. He, he says, to some it's a sin and to others it's not. Is that possible? It actually is. If you think it's a sin that's in your conscience, then don't break your conscience sake. Study that, check it out, but it becomes wrong when it's committed against your conscience. In, in his own mind, that person has committed sin. In his own mind. He doesn't feel good about it. A defiled conscience is a defiled faith in that sense. He goes around with guilt and carries that around. So love should tell us because it's not acceptable to a fellow believer, although to me it is, 
I shouldn't take advantage of this freedom that I have and that I know I have. And doctrinally, I know that I have this freedom in this, but I'm not going to take advantage of this, brother. Boy, that's dying to self, isn't it? And we go back to Corinthians here. And we see that there's really no spiritual significance whether you partake of that meat or not partake of it. Food doesn't commend us. Does eating that sacrificial food make you more spiritual? Or not eating it? Does that make you more spiritual? If you wear certain clothes that other people would say that would be wrong. Now, there, and there is a sense that you have to be really careful. Uh, you wouldn't want to have people bring, wearing clothes that were lewd and that were temptations to people too. And this is where uh, a lot of wisdom really has to come in. I know it gets really difficult. And we are in a culture that has that. If you would live in a culture, let's say Russia, for instance. I notice in the pictures that they have in their churches, women wear head coverings. I'm not so sure exactly why, unless they are going it by in Corinthians. Or is that in their culture? They always wear those. Um, I'm not going to let it bother me. That's not a big deal. That's okay. If that's what they do, fine. Um, it doesn't commend you one way or the other. though. It doesn't make one more spiritual. Things not forbidden by the Word really has no significance uh, either. Look at Mark 7.15. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him. Those are the things that defile a man. Hey, if anyone has ears to hear, you want to hear this? Hear it. (laughs) He's saying what is inside is really what counts. And, of course, this love issue is going to come in there. Concern for another person is even more important than your own self. Uh, but it's not the physical thing that makes you, but it's what's there. Uh, the next section, we're getting ready to close it out here, back to Corinthians. And we get into the love issue now. Remember, we, we looked at doctrine there. We looked at knowledge. Here's the deal with love. But beware, verse 9, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge of eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him as weak be emboldened to eat those things offered idols? He might do it. And because your knowledge shall the weak brother be, uh, perish or be ruined for whom Christ died, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Wow. Takes it all the way to that. We should never influence a fellow Christian to do something that we know that his conscience would be violated. Okay, he goes ahead and does it, but he still doesn't feel good about it. It turns into a a catastrophe. Uh, He uses a uh, hypothetical case here in verse 10. If anyone sees you, you know, going to some place and eating that meat, uh, you can cause a person to sin by leading them into a situation they can't handle. You may be able to handle it, and that be very well. But if they are with you, or you know they're looking at you, we have to be very careful not to violate that conscience. Uh, maybe encourage them. Uh, 
whenever he says in verse 11, and because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish. I don't know what your versions have. Or, or be ruined. That's the idea of the Greek there. Um, may not necessarily cause him to die, but uh, can really uh, put him to ruin or, or, or such a heavy guilt on him. Uh, it means that our Christian liberty should never be used at the expense of a Christian brother who has been redeemed by Christ, for whom Christ died. He's been redeemed by Him. Their price is what? The very blood of Christ. And we shouldn't cause them to sin at the expense of our arrogance. They've been bought by the same blood. They're brothers and sisters in Christ also. And then He restates the very issue in verse 12. And 13, when you thus sin against the brethren, and when they're weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wow, you're actually sinning against Christ, even though what you're doing, you're entirely free to. But when you know it's offending them, look what's happening. Wow. We should be willing to limit our liberty at any time. Be willing to give at least for that point in time. Is our liberality as a Christian a hazard to a weak believer? Or is it a help? We want to edify, right? So, we have gray areas. And it might be all right. And you might see that you have every right in your freedom and liberality to do as you please. But Paul says that you have to consider you have to consider a brother in Christ and whether he can handle it or not. How can we bring this up to our own time? What you do is it an excess? Is it really that important? Let's say somebody really, really um, enjoys doing something. It's okay, neither here nor there. But is he doing that as an extra? And he gets to the point where really God isn't first place. What has he just done? He's turned that in into an idol. His own freedom in that. How about expediency? Is this is this helpful or is it useless? what I'd be doing anyway. It's okay, but is it really helpful? And then, are we setting a good example? There's another one. There are people watching. Are we a good example? How about evangelism? Is my witness uh, a help or an aid to other people or does it hinder other people what I'm doing? Right? Another one be for edification. Am I becoming spiritually stronger here for what I'm doing? Be a good question. And, and last but not least, and what is most important, is this. Exaltation. Is God being glorified in what I do? Because in 1 Corinthians 10, same book, verse 31, what does it say? Therefore, whether you eat or drink, that's what he's been talking about here, or whatever you do, it doesn't matter what you do, anything, what do we do? Do all to the glory of God. And and if all of this has sound repetitious all the way through, and it probably has because it was meant to, and that's what Paul has done, but it needs to stick in our head, just ask yourself this. And whatever you're doing, is it giving glory to God? Is that a good question to ask?